Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Andrew Revkin, noted journalist, author, and educator, has been reporting on climate change for the better part of 35 years. In a conversation with the traveler's Lynn Riddick, he shares stories of his experiences and how he is adapting his work to foster conversations rather than a traditional form of interrogative storytelling. He regards today's communication climate as an inseparable part of the Earth system and vital in our response to real climate issues. He also has some thoughts about our national parks and the landscapes we are enjoying at this particular moment in time. After a short break, Lynn will be back with Andrew. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. I am very pleased to have with me today, Andrew Revkin. He's a prominent science and environmental journalist who has done extensive reporting on climate change issues for the New York Times, National Geographic, Discover Magazine, and ProPublica, to name a few. He has published books on climate, weather, the Amazon rainforest, and the North Pole. He is now at the Columbia University Earth Institute as founder and director of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. He's the recipient of all kinds of awards and fellowships, and in his free time, he writes and performs music. He's calling in from his home in Lemoyne, Maine, just outside of Acadia National Park. Hi, Andy. Welcome to The Traveler. I'm so glad to be with you. Well, there are so many things I want to ask you about because climate change is such a huge topic, and I definitely want to get your thoughts on climate change in the national parks. But first, let's start with this. What was the first major article you ever wrote on climate issues? It came out in March of 1985, actually, and it wasn't about climate change, meaning global warming. It was about nuclear winter, the uh, the prospect that uh, if we uh, immolated enough cities in, in a nuclear war, that would chill the climate by creating a veil of sooty pollution in the atmosphere. And sadly, that article is kind of like come back to be relevant again, as uh, I've written in recent months uh, to some extent about uh, the risk of nuclear war, um, given what Vladimir Putin has been doing in Ukraine. I can't believe it, but you know, you think of the Cold War as having been something that happened, but now we, are, we're, we see the same dynamics. It was 1988 that I wrote my first really long, thorough story on global warming. 
which is kind of the inverse, adding gases to the atmosphere, the trap heat that will make the planet warmer for centuries to come. You know, carbon dioxide, the main emission from humans, lasts a long time once you burn a piece of coal or uh, the like. And so that creates a cumulative risk that uh, we're still grappling with understanding and responding to. So 1988, which is for me half my life ago. <laughs> and and, and um, I have a Medicare card in my wallet. So, so that's a long time. Well, what's your most recent article on climate issues? Oh, just a few hours ago. Uh, you know, I write now about um, not just the climate system, but the communication climate as it relates to how we respond to or ignore the climate problem. And I think I've become convinced that the communication environment that we live in, you know, here we are talking through screens and digital uh, interfaces, how we deal with that, how we uh, deal with pollution there, meaning misinformation or distraction, is a key driver or facilitator of either progress or problems in our relationship with the the, the actual climate system. So, so I've, I've, I was writing just today about uh, the news process and how in newsrooms, which I've inhabited for a very long time, uh, there's a tendency to latch on to some particular study, some new event, and run with it, you know, as the front page thought. So so uh, in the recent days, I've been focusing on that part of the climate system. But, all, every, you know, every day, every week, I wake up thinking, uh, what can I do with communication tools to facilitate better outcomes, whether it's communities choosing a more sustainable energy system, or uh, if they're in Colorado, figuring out how to build more safely in fire zones, or if they're uh, on a coast like uh, here in Maine or in uh, Hawaii, they, they figure out how to live sustainably in, in, in a time in which uh, sea levels will be rising for centuries to come. So those are, it's really my daily question. Not, it, it, it's a continuum. Yeah, I was kind of curious to see, you know, what you might say about how the world has changed and how our collective understanding or our collective lack of understanding um, has progressed in the almost 40 years between those two articles that you referenced. And how would you summarize what's taken place with information, awareness and actions? Yeah, well, back back in the 80s, the information, the news environment was really sort of a one-way street. Uh, I, I was at, in that time I was in magazines, uh, Discover Magazine, Science Digest. Um, so if you had already were interested in science, you were reading those magazines, you'd get it once a month and there was my big story on global warming and you'd read it and maybe send it a letter to the editor. If you turn on the TV back then, well, at least through 1982, you heard Walter Cronkite tell you that's the way it is. He was giving you a synthesized picture of what happened that day. His last broadcast, I'm pretty sure, was in 1982. That was his last sign-off using those terms. But the media, for a very long time, have been, uh, we depend on them to tell us the way it is. And now it's more complicated than that. The system has become much more a two-way street. So that that's, I think that can be bad. You know, we're, the, the mechanisms that we use through which we get the news contain algorithms that are designed, unfortunately, still to either uh, delight us or aggravate us. And both of those ha 
tendencies of what we're seeking can torque us and distract us from really understanding the way things are. So, so um, if you just sit back and have sort of a passive recipient approach to the stuff flowing through into your news window these days, you know, I wouldn't rely on that being a real full picture of the way the world works. So that's what has happened with the news process. The the environment, the climate system, unfortunately, CO2 is the carbon dioxide. It, it is the bubbles in beer, as well as being a pollutant. And it's really hard for us to um, figure out how to uh, attend to that building risk that is posed by these uh, gases, which come mainly from burning fossil fuels, and our reliance on energy. Uh, again, you're seeing right now with uh, the disruption of global energy systems because of the war in uh, Ukraine, that climate always gets pushed to the back burner. And, and I would say appropriately, because people in Europe are going to be uh, freezing. Literally, there, there, there are countries where people are scrambling and burning down their forests to, or you know, harvesting firewood to get through the winter. And uh, you know, because the conventional supplies of natural gas and the like were disrupted by the invasion. And uh, so climate has this habit of being an issue that we can keep pushing off and pushing off. And, and here we are, you know, the climate system is substantially changed from when I, when I wrote about this 30, you know, 35 years ago, it's a new climate. It, it hot, hotter temperatures are hotter. Uh, sea levels have risen and are going to keep rising. It's complicated though. Some storm patterns are changing. Others are not. And I used to think that there was a sort of a straightforward way as a journalist to tell the story that would then propel us all <laughs> to, you know, change our ways. And it's just, it's harder than that. It's kind of like managing a, we'll get to this, but like managing a national park in a changing climate when the whole history of parks a century ago was sort of a static gem of a place. And now the changes that are being unfolding really require the same kind of reinvention of what we think of as a park. Well, uh, that that challenge is all around us now. What have been the most difficult aspects of being an environmental journalist and, and covering climate topics? Well, I'd say the the first one is kind of what I said a minute ago, but you you can never really write a climate a story that will say global warming happened today, <laughs> and, and yet the news business is mostly about what happened today. And I've been you know not just this not just climate. Um, in the 90s at the New York Times, I was writing a really big report on the future of New York City's water supply up in the Catskills, you know, 19 reservoirs, a 100-year-old system that was straining because of development, pollution. And, and I, there was an editor who said, uh, isn't this an awful lot about something that hasn't happened yet? That, mm -hmm. you, you know, it's, and, you know, that, that dynamic is there. Are, the line was, aren't we getting a little ahead of the news? Interesting. And, oh, my God. Oh, my, you know, that, that's a real OMG moment. Oh, my God, you know. But isn't, our, isn't that our role to some, some extent as well? We're, we're not just uh, reporting what happened. We're, we're there to be a public service. Um, but that's harder. It's harder to get that, the attention it needs, um, especially when it's a systemic, tough challenge. We do, it's not like traditional, some of the old pollution problems 
that were also very epic, you know, sooty, smoggy pollution. That was addressable pretty in pretty straightforward ways. It didn't require unraveling the entire economy. Uh, and through until recently, renewable energy or other kinds of energy besides fossil fuels have absolutely been more expensive, less convenient. You know, the wind doesn't blow 24 hours a day. The sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day. So you don't have a, an immediate solution. But with um, smokestack pollution, lots of kinds of water pollution, there were things you could do right away that could make a difference. So, so the old pollution problems, the old environmental problems, felt they created maybe a higher expectation of we could do that with these, the climate problem as well. And unfortunately, it's more complex, more system systematic. Uh, it's kind of like democracy or healthcare, you know, these issues that we deal with and work on always. Uh, building a safer relationship with climate is not a news story. It really is about uh, exploring some fundamental shifts in how we operate and think. Uh, and that takes time. I wanted to also ask you, what surprises you most in your work covering scientific issues related to climate change? Well, one of my surprises, I think I'd say this is a good way to characterize it, came about 18 years into my climate reporting journey. So around 2006, when the issue got pretty heated, uh, you know, contentious, um, Al Gore's movie had come out, Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma was clamoring, you know, it became very politicized at that point. And you're um, referencing uh, Inconvenient Truth. Right. So I was asked by an editor, why is everyone so polarized around this issue? And I started to write about social science and behavioral science related to climate. I, you know, I had come at, at it in the 80s and 90s, sort of as a, a traditional environmental reporter focused on the environment, you know, how this gas changes temperature, how that changes ecosystems and humans. And so it was very kind of a mechanistic approach. And then the political, um, social, behavioral questions, I really started to ask only in a big way in around 2006 uh, for that story and then onward. And I realized, oh my gosh, uh, there was a social scientist who said, well, they laid out for me a landscape of knowledge uh, on why humans make decisions about certain things, why, how we prioritize things. Uh, there's a social scientist, she's now at, at Princeton, she was at Columbia, named Elke Weber, who had written about how we, we all have a, uh, what she called a finite basket of worry. So if you think of yourself carrying a basket of your bills, you're thinking about your children, are they safe? You know, what are they, is their teacher doing well at her job? Um, uh, are you making enough money as your job? So you're carrying all that around in a basket on your shoulders, a basket of worry. And and climate is really hard to fit into that basket unless your house just burned down or the like. And then you do think, oh my gosh, uh, what just happened and why? So, so, so that social and behavioral science really um, became a big focus of mine. And it was a surprise. It really did surprise me that there was so much knowledge there that I hadn't really in, interrogated as a journalist. Uh, and I guess I was also surprised through that 
body of research, much of which kind of implies, oh, well, that's why, you know, I don't have a good diet. <laughs> that's, you know, we, we tend to reach for the cookie more than the apple. You, you know, those these really hardcore behavioral realities about human humans um, mostly feel pretty discouraging. <laughs> but then the same body of science revealed some real opportunities. A group at Yale has for, well, since the late aughts, 2008 or so, have been doing surveys on basically what Americans feel about climate change. And there's they've identified six Americas. There are six kinds of Americans, basically, from dismissive at one end to alarmed at the other, and with different kind of levels of awareness in the middle. And what they found is in surveys is that people who were really unconcerned about climate change we're actually very supportive of things like research and development for better solar panels. And well, this was crystallized when a reporter, uh, John Sutter from CNN, went to a county in Oklahoma that this Yale program had just had just had determined was the most skeptical county in America when it came to global warming. So this is ground zero for climate doubt, climate skepticism. Uh, I don't use the word deny or denial frequently because I, we could talk about that more later. But um, so he went there and he talked to people and just did, wanted to interview them in 2015 about their basic uh, attitudes on everything. And there was a guy um, who worked for an oil company, and this is in the oil patch in Oklahoma, who um, was a creationist. He believed that the world started 6,000 years ago. He said at one point that God controls the environment. So that through that part of the interview, and you're watching the video, you think, okay, this is, doesn't seem promising if we want to have a science-based discussion. But then he said, the same man said, uh, you know, we have half of our roof covered in solar panels, and we want to get off the grid entirely. So the, the moral of that story for me is, oh, if I went to that, to Woodward County with a big placard saying, stop global warming, I wouldn't find him as an ally. But if I went in there and said, boy, renewable energy is great. We should all have the opportunity to put solar panels on our roof. Uh, we could have a really great conversation about what policies might do that. And that, so that's the opportunity that's revealed by the same uh, social behavioral science that you can get around these, what seem like roadblocks, if you start with a with a clean slate, you don't come in with an agenda. If if you listen more than you speak, and and that and by the way, he went. Uh, John Sutter went went to his house. He confirmed, you know, the solar panels were there, and there were more in the garage. And and when I talk to activists or young people about this, I say, just think about that. You know, what's how would you approach that communication challenge? Uh, you can have you can find some commonality with almost anybody on an issue that matters, but once an issue becomes sort of toxified and polarized, starting with that, with your own vision of the problem, can create roadblocks that don't need to be there. You know, I, I did want to see if there was a certain article or body of work that you're most proud of, or that you feel like had the greatest impact. Impact is an interesting thing to examine. I think 
the problem, these kinds of problems that we're talking about uh, that are sort of systems problems that don't have a single solution, but aren't about exposing a particular polluting pipe and doing a story that gets attention and gets that pipe turned off. There, there aren't really these magical impact metrics. I, I think what I've found valuable in recent years is, and I'm hoping this might actually be more impactful in the long run, is the shift I made from just telling stories one by one to fostering conversations. When I was at the North Pole in 2003 for the New York Times, out on the sea ice, early spring when the uh, the sun was up over the horizon, an editor back on the uh, what was still a young website of the New York Times in 2003, she suggested we do a Q&A with readers. So I was out there, you know, reporting the story, taking pictures, shooting video, which I wasn't ob ob obliged to do. A lot of that ended up in the paper and on the website. It was really exciting. But what? But the Q&A I did with readers was my first step toward understanding that I could have a different form of journalism, more more interrogatory, more conversational, that, that readers' questions, which were being transmitted to me on in a phone call at that time, were as valuable as just me being out there on the ice and asking my own questions of the scientists I was with. A year later, I started doing sort of a blog when I was in Greenland, writing about the future of that great ice sheet. I did these postcards from the Arctic. And then that led to the blog that I developed at the New York Times in 2007. And I guess that blog, Dot Earth, which I launched that year and ran for nine years, if there's one body of work I feel may have shifted things a little bit in a, in a better direction that will outlive me, it was that by fostering a more uh, interrogatory conversational form of journalism through the blog, it was a daily question: how do how do we head to how do we head toward nine billion people with the fewest regrets? As as a so my beat was a question. It wasn't the environment. It was uh, how do we build a better relationship with the the living world around us, including the human part, and uh, it, and it was iterative and multidimensional. You know, I wrote about. The blog was, how, was about social science, it was about behavioral science, technology, policy, law. And it created a um, portrait of the overall issues of sustainability that was similar to what those issues are. Many dimensions, many perspectives. I developed a line of posts there that were readers. If a reader posted a comment that I thought was particularly rich, I would put the spotlight on them, but just reposting their comment as a piece on the blog in the New York Times website. Uh, There's no other place at the Times doing that. And um, it just felt, again, I did 2,810 of those. Uh, there were 100,000 comments, uh, some number of millions of readers. And it did reverberate a little bit. I think, uh, you know, blog, there's a more bloggish style to the news flow at most places these days than, than there was. I wasn't the only person doing it, obviously, but but I think that that really, that feels like, you know, I could point back to my book on the Amazon, The Burning Season, which is more traditional. It was, it's probably the piece of work 
I'm most proud of is just a good book. But that blog process, I think, um, will do the world more good than the book in the long run. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'll be back with journalist Andrew Revkin after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Interior Federal Credit Union offers a large suite of savings products, including secondary savings accounts for budgeting, individual retirement accounts, health savings accounts, education savings accounts, money marketing accounts, and certificates. Start the new year off with an account at Interior Federal Credit Union and get ready for all the adventures 2023 has to offer. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on the homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm back now with science and environmental journalist Andrew Revkin. I wanted to know if you found yourself ever getting frustrated by information out there, climate change dismissers, or those alarmists who feel like the end of the world is here. Yes. <laughs> That's a simple question. That's a simple answer. But yeah, um, it's it's clear that there's a certain fraction of society that is totally uninterested in veracity or simply doesn't find veracity useful. And uh, particularly among those who are completely completely denying that climate can change because of human behavior, human activities, that's so well established in the science now that it's uh, not a point to argue. There's, There's plenty of arguments to have about how how bad how much of a particular extreme event is from carbon dioxide emitted by people and how much of it is because of uh, natural variability in the uh, climate system and the like what what it would bothers me in this part of the spectrum is people who are professionals who know better who um, kind of amplify that part of the argument um, it's the same thing with covid with pandemics. Uh, this is not climate specific. And at the same time, always going to be there. There's something about human nature that uh, there are still flat earthers and the like. And then there is the line of f- fundamentalism with the religion. You can feel like some of these are fights not worth having because people are so dug in and they're really at a margin of 
the issue. For example, if I went on Twitter right now and wanted to search for denial, oh, I'd be I could feast on it all day and think I'm I could try to spend 24 hours a day batting it down. But that same you could say the same thing about virtually every UFOs. <laughs> I've written about UFOs last year because that suddenly got into the news with very little evidence. And there's a whole it's a similar story. So I wrote about it. Or you can then at least focus on, well, who's who's like profiting from that misinformation or who's amplifying it uh, intention with intentional with intention for some other reason. And you can almost always find those entities are there. And that's that's something that's worth um, fighting. At the other end of the extreme, people who are um, convinced the world's going to end if we don't deeply cut emissions of greenhouse gases in the next eight years or choose your time frame. There, there's a certain, there's a similar sense of um, uh, immovability. There, I, there are people who are just as dug in and convinced that um, we're doomed. They're, let me put it this way. They're so convinced that they're doomed, that we're doomed, um, that they attack on social media, the, the most reasonable, smart, capable scientists who are trying really gamely to keep uh, constructive discussion and action going around how to reduce climate risk. Um, Jacqueline Gill, a friend of mine at the University of Maine, uh, Elena Wood, who's become a TikToker for climate. Elena said she's left, she just left Twitter completely because, because she's been attacked so relentlessly by people who think climate change is a catastrophe unfolding that she's not that she's not on the catastrophe you know boat therefore they attack her and to think that people who worry about climate change are attacking constructive solid folks like this just that drives me a little crazy uh, but i unfortunately um it's hard to um figure out how to make progress there too yeah i was curious to know how how do you prevent yourself from getting defensive or emotional? Yeah. There were times when it was really hard to avoid that. There was a year in 2009, Rush, Rush Limbaugh, not on the internet, but on radio, suggested that I kill myself if I thought that people are, the population, the people are the worst thing that happened to the planet. And he was misconstruing something completely that I had said uh, at a conference. And that was pretty hard to deal with. I've been attacked by the from the left, although not nearly as much as my female friends and people I, of color I know who, who deal with this much more than us older white guys. I, I think I, you know, I think I've been somewhat inured to to some of it just by having been buffeted so much. Um, and again, I try when I go on social media, I. I go there as much as I can not to just experience social media, meaning whatever I see, but to use it purposefully. I've been writing about this quite a bit, given what's happening with Twitter, trying to encourage uh, those who are discouraged or worried or bailing out completely that uh, most of the problems with these, these media come when you just turn it on and look at what's there. If you get exploited by the algorithms that take you down to the worst parts of you and the worst parts of the internet. If you go in um, 
to, to, to build partnerships and communities around tough questions. If you go in to see if an issue you care about in Ohio is similarly being dealt with in uh, another part of the world or another part of the country that you can learn from, if you use these, these portals actively uh, with intent, intention, then you really don't see that stuff. It, you don't have to. It's it's not blinders either. It's just a matter of putting the tool to the use you want it, as opposed to letting it use you. And on my Substack um, column these days, I focus a lot on this. By virtue of the work you do, would you call yourself an activist? And and how does one square the role of journalism with the inevitable activism it might conjure? Huh. I was first asked this question. In 2005, I just recently reposted a uh, lecture I gave. Uh, Willamette University, 2005, they were pulling together a conference on the balancing the personal and the professional. And the question they asked me was, how can you write about the environment and care about the environment and at the same time be dispassionate? How, how as a journalist, do you deal with that? And my answer, you know, it's a long answer, but... <laughs> The core, the core is, um, you know, I um, my advocacy is for reality, and that takes me past the traditional idea that a journalist um, can't be passionate about anything. I'm passionate about reality, and reality is even when it's gray, and that means, um, you know, embracing the state of the world for what it is. Uh, understanding that complexity is normal and that within human affairs, particularly that having uh, different responses to a stress, uh, whether it's pollution or, or the disruption from, a, you know, an invasion of a friendly country, a peaceful country, that you can't expect humans ever to have a single unitary response to that. And that's also led me away from again, as storytelling as my main stock and trade to conversation facilitation. Um, I think if we can imbue spread habits and how to approach a tough issue, uh, whether it's in your community, your town council meeting, or in your work, um, you know, or if you're a teacher or a student or an activist, you know, how do you handle your advocacy? Um, just to understand to at least acknowledge that complexity is normal, I think is, is, is a valuable starting point by embracing the reality of the world and still interrogating it as a journalist, I can get both all of this done and still have passion, still care, and um, still feel like I'm doing a useful job, just not in the old style of telling a story that gets a lot of eyeballs or, you know, for an opinion writer writing a column, that conveys a very sort of simplistic view of what we should do. Um, even when I was at the New York Times uh, in 2010, I shifted from the news side of the paper to the opinion side, and Dot Earth continued there. And, uh, you know, I said, my opinion is reality matters. And uh, I actually was critical sometimes of uh, op eds, these, you know, which is a very standard form of writing for the opinion pages of papers because uh, they're very brittle they're compact they're arguments uh for a particular course and 
to me, it's the conversation around the, those assertions that is the most important thing to capture. I remember years ago, an article in Vanity Fair about a man who was the go-to person for the contrarian point of view on climate change. And I tried to look up the article or tried to find the man's name. I couldn't. Um, but because, you know, he was always sought out for the other side of the story. And because journalists understand that both sides are needed to have a balanced story. Um, but then at some time, you know, reality kicks in and point of view becomes important too, because, um, if one side of an issue is factually inaccurate, why does it need to be represented? And so like, if it's raining outside, why does a journalist need to interview somebody who says it's not raining? So, you know, your thoughts on that. Oh yeah. Well, the, there are these, um, the newsrooms are full of, um, norms that can get in the way of getting a story, right. Um, one of them is this idea of uh, balance. Uh, Max Boykoff and his brother Jules Boykoff, two social scientists in 2003, wrote a paper, 2002 or 2003, called Balance as Bias. And it was focused on climate coverage. Uh, and this was a time when I was doing a lot of the climate coverage. And it had exactly the point you're raising, is that the, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, can miss when the barometer, the reality is way over toward one end of the spectrum of some of a question, that doesn't, that's not job done. It can be too simply, especially in distilled media like radio or TV, where everything's down to sound bites. Um, and I think one of the practices I encouraged when I was uh, writing about journalism through that stretch, a couple of book chapters and, and the like, at the very least, if you're writing a story about some question in climate science, like what's going to happen with sea ice on the Arctic Ocean? Are we going to have an open Arctic Ocean by 2030? The reporting on that that matters is when you're talking to scientists who are studying that question. And maybe some more general scientists who look at climate simulations of the Earth system. But I wouldn't reach out to someone at Greenpeace, and I certainly wouldn't reach out to someone at a uh, think tank funded by oil, com um, oil companies or ideologues in a story about sea ice. But in a story on climate policy, which again, in the 2000s, the big issue was, should there be a carbon tax, you know, a piece of carbon, uh, a bill, a climate bill, or the uh, under the climate treaty, the uh, Kyoto Protocol in the 90s through um, the thousands, the, the early 2000s. If you're talking about policy, actually there's a much wider landscape of people to talk to because there's no simple yes, no mm -hmm. answer. You know, uh, And oil companies actually deserve uh, to have a voice in a story on climate pricing carbon because that's their product <laughs> essentially. Uh, so the first step would be to to ask yourself as a journalist, and by the way, this the same usefulness is for readers. If you're reading a story about sea ice or Arctic, you know, Antarctica, and you're seeing voices there of someone from Greenpeace or an oil company, you you should question the value of that particular article, because the uh, if the issue of the day is the science, then focus on the science. 
So, so that's one way around that. The other way is simply just to characterize in writing, in words, where people are coming from. If you're doing a policy story, you know, you don't just say Myron E. Bell, who was, he might've been the person who was in that article you were talking about. He worked at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And I think that tanks, was it, yeah. Funded by, you know, uh, anti-regulatory ideologues and, and uh, energy companies. So if he's in a story about the climate treaty, that's okay, but make sure you indicate who he works for. Um, Pat Michaels, who passed away recently, was a climate scientist who worked at the Cato Institute, very much uh, sort of a case study and a scientist with a degree who actually had done quite a bit of good. He's done a lot. He had done a lot of good science, basic science. He was the state climatologist of Virginia, I believe, at one point. But he was at the Cato Institute, which is an anti-regulatory uh, activist uh, think tank. And uh, that has to be in the story. If you just say Pat Michaels, Dr. Pat Michaels, then you're you're not doing your readers a service. So there there are ways to do this. Uh, uh, they do require, work. to some extent, some ex <laughs> work, yeah, and experience. You know, uh, unfortunately, there's been an explosion of journalists covering climate in recent years. It's great. But many of them are new to the beat. Uh, and if they don't have the habits of getting past the PhD, uh, then they might might see someone have too much of a focus on some person's stance as being legitimate when it's more questionable. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'll be back with journalist Andrew Revkin after this short break. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm back now with science and environmental journalist Andrew Revkin. Let's talk about the national parks. Are you a fan? Have you visited many? Oh, yeah, I'm a fan. Um, I'm trying to think of the first national park I visited. I grew up in Rhode Island. And it might have been Arcadia up in Maine, where I live now. Um, or it could have been the Everglades. I, my family, we, my grandparents lived in Florida. And we um, went in both of those directions, uh, definitely to Florida. Uh, so it was, and the Everglades, I also returned to as a journalist uh, several times when I was at the New York Times. I, it's an amazing park that 
encapsulates a lot of the challenges facing every national park now. It's changing, your sea level rise is changing things. Invasive species are a huge issue. Um, uh, the relationship with the surrounding systems, agriculture in Florida, you know, is a huge part of the future of the Everglades. And so that, I think probably that park is where I got my biggest taste of what parks mean, both in the, the wonderful sense and the challenge sense. Acadia too, you know, as a, as a kid, we were there, I think when I was 12 and then here now, <laughs> It's almost visible from my house. And my, my mother-in-law lives in Winter Harbor, which is the gateway to Skudik, uh Peninsula, which is a part of the Arcadia National Park that is less visited. But they're, they're extraordinary. You know, these are landscapes that the vision that created the system in the late 1800s, the work that's been done to sustain and expand the system, including the uh, other levels of national forest and the like, is just fantastic. I mean, I've been to Yosemite, Yellowstone, the Sequoia, Rocky Grand Mountains Canyon. National Park, Rocky Mountain. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. No, I still have a list. Of, no, I have not been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's on my list. Uh, but it's, you know, having this across the, the country is a wonderful gift. How much attention do you pay to climate change in the national parks and is it sort of natural for you at this point when you hear about some major weather event in a park and think, well, that's the result of a rapidly warming earth? I always end up feeling, given what I've learned about things for like wildfire and invasive species, it's complicated, meaning there's so many factors in motion at the same time that uh, it can be hard to just point your finger and say, that's climate change. Uh, Yosemite, for example, um, several times in the last 10 years, there have been fires that have come really close or uh, caused the park to be closed down. Years ago, during one of these periods when there were fires around Yosemite, I reached out to Tom Swetnam, who's a longtime tree ring scientist, S-W-E-T-N-A-M, and he had done one of the pivotal studies, a sort of a, a little transect across that whole region, showing that the historic changes in fire patterns way before global warming, uh, they were extraordinary. And they were mostly because of land use change, uh, that you had this fire was the normal condition there, a lot of fire, not necessarily to the levels of intensity you see now. But there's a reason for that. And then in the uh, 20, late 19th, 20th centuries, that rate plunged. It was That was when we shifted to this regime of stopping every fire. And when livestock full ranging came into some parts around the park, around Yosemite, and you look at the data and you see this normalcy of fire and then this complete diminution of fire. And now you see a surge in fire and you realize so many factors are involved there that it's not simple to point to global warming as as too often happens i think this is one of those cases where but at the same time you had a uh, past president saying it was because we're not not uh, sweeping the forest floor uh, you know it's not about picking up twigs either it's um these big issues uh, and i i think what they lead me to as a journalist is the is uh, important to understand What's important to understand is that um, 
our relationship to forests and other fire-prone ecosystems, rangeland, grassland, are uh, <clears throat> in flux. And there's plenty you can do to reduce vulnerability and loss. Um, but thinking that you're gonna, we're going to head to a world that's in the West that is uh, fire-free is fantasy. It's it's a this is a landscape that evolved to burn, that aches to burn. That uh, so it's about building a new relationship with fire and fuels and climate is the way to having a sustainable, insane relationship with uh, those landscapes. Well, you've written about the wildland fires in Yosemite and fire suppression. And I wondered if you thought this work had helped shape policy or the Park Service's approach to wildland fire management. In 2016, um, I was invited to a retreat in Kings Canyon National Park out in the Sequoias to, it was centered on the word wildness as opposed to wilderness. Uh, it was kind of a high level thinkathon. And um, while I was there on a hike, um, we passed a crew of managed uh, who were doing, preparing to do a prescribed burn around a particular grove of sequoias that uh, where it was critical to reduce the uh, amount of undergrowth that had accumulated through so much fire suppression. I talked to them and I talked to, I made some calls and it took like a decade to get the permits together for this one. It was like a 750 acre burn. This is out of an area that that part of California, I think it's been estimated they need to burn like 2 million acres a year. So some, the, the backlog of, of needed needs for, prescribed burning is enormous and it took you said like a, a, dec a decade in this instance a decade yes to do to get permits arranged because partially because of uh, state uh clean air laws that uh, if you intentionally create a fire you're adding smoke which is a uh, pollution uh, if the fire happens quote unquote naturally it doesn't violate the permit <laughs> the air, clean air the clean air standards but so, so it just showed to me, to me just the, the enormous backlog. The, the intention is there for sure. There are many U.S. Forest Service and National Park Service uh, forest um, managers who are passionate about the need to restore fire to these ecosystems. But the capacity to do it is really limited. Uh, and I think some of those tangles are really hard to un undo. It's um, because these uh, the Cleaner Act and the state versions and the like are really hard to sort of um, open up and rejigger. Have you written many other stories about the parks and climate issues within? I'm preparing to write about, I just moved to Maine uh, six months ago and I've uh, been coming here for a long time. My wife's, my mother-in-law's from this little village near the uh, Skutik part of Arcadia. And I'm planning to write a lot about change here, both the Gulf of Maine warming and how that's affecting the uh, fate of these coastal wonders. Um, I'm really interested in the inland, the forest issues too. But I have to say it's it's very much an interplay between climate and biological change. The uh, invasive species, introduced species, are such an extraordinary influence here uh, that it's hard to understate how monumental that question is. And you know, worrying about how much of that is a function of climate change can be can bog down the need to to address it. The the green crab, this little 
crab has just completely transformed the coastal uh, ecology here already. Um, uh, and climate could or may or may not be having a role in the abundance issue with those crabs. But boy, it's um, just walking out here on the tidal flats a low tide and, and the clams have been devastated and that has implications for the other parts of the ecosystem. So huge. The Everglades, when I was there, I wrote about the pythons, you know, the ultimate charismatic mega invasive species, <laughs> Burmese pythons, completely, really dramatically changing the Everglades um, ecosystems. I, I won't forget when uh, the park biologist opened this freezer and it was full of all the uh, flamingos and deer and wildlife that had extricated from the guts of these pythons. Uh, and, you know, they're trying to figure out pathways for management and what they have found, what at least this was, that was over a decade ago, that story. But he, this is a resource question too. The uh, park biologists found that they had to devote so much of their time and resources to this endangered, to this um, introduced species that it was impeding their capacity to deal with issues like climate impacts on the park or sea level rise. You know, though, you, you know, these park managers only have a finite number of days and hours in the week, and uh, it can be overwhelming. I, I get the sense often that there's uh, that list of that that action list is way too long for the resources that are applied to it. Yeah, I wanted to point out that um, 2016, a, a Washington Post reporter had asked Jonathan Jarvis, who was the director of the National Park Service at the time about climate change and challenges the parks had um, in dealing with them. And he said that climate was going to drive a lot of change and that the effects were already being seen, which was quite a statement given that he was serving in a very environmentally unfriendly administration. So that was 2016. And what's been happening since, as you know, major, road, um, major roads washed away in Yellowstone this summer from thousand-year catastrophic uh, flooding, major wildland fires in Yosemite, Kings Canyon, Lassen Volcano National Park, Santa Fe National Forest, you know, severe drought causing all-time low water levels in the Colorado River and in the national recreational areas of Lake Powell and Lake Mead, and rising tides causing houses to collapse, you know, into the surf at Cape Hatteras National Seashore and invasive species like you mentioned, and the list goes on. So, um, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but from what you've seen, written about, or read, how do you feel the Park Service is addressing climate issues, current and past, and, and do you think the service is doing it in a scientific manner, despite how daunting it is? I wrote about this challenge of ecosystems getting into states of deep flux that were bad fit for static areas like preserves or parks. Uh, a couple of decades ago, this came out in one of the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports that you get these shifts in conditions that create challenges, particularly when there's highways or other impediments, so species can't necessarily shift as well. And parks have static borderlines. I think that there are two challenges. One is the functionality challenge that you mentioned in terms of roads washing out. Um, and in terms, I think that relates just to overuse generally. There's, And uh, one of the issues Chuck Sams described when he spoke 
at Arcadia this year, and I got to moderate a discussion with him and some young scientists was, you know, we, along with balancing climate change, we're balancing inclusion and making sure parks are accessible to everybody. Um, I think overall, what I've seen is a good response so far. I think the uh, everyone I know who works in the park service is passionate in a way that doesn't exist for every job in the world. Um, I think there's a sense of um, curatorial responsibility that is very uh, special. And there are people working in what the signs should say or what apps can be used to better convey to people visiting a park, not just the climate change implications, but um, the indigenous histories, uh, finding ways to build that knowledge into a park experience so people can somehow look forward and understand what that landscape might look like you know 100 years from now because of uh, again the diminution of the glaciers and arctic parks or in <laughs> glacier national park and also thinking uh, with deep history in mind what can we tell what are ways to tell the, the backstory of those lands as well um, who was there what species were there through through past time there's a lot of innovation being applied there that I've seen. I think it's good. Yeah, I was curious to know uh, what you thought the National Park Service um, ought to tell visitors about climate change. Well, in a, in a perfect world, it, it isn't that different from what people should be able to experience and understand whether they're tuning into a news broadcast or 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 visiting a park, you know, where you 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 get a sense of appreciating you're at a moment in history that the landscape around you is not the way it was and it won't be the way you see it now in the future and that humans can play a role in either worsening or improving what that landscape or seascape, bioscape looks like, feels like, works like um, for generations ahead. And it can be done in a non-polemical way. It doesn't have to be pushing an agenda at all. And I, I, you know, I think this is, goes beyond the park service. Go back to the discussion that you had this summer with the um, National Park Service Director Chuck Sams and the young scientists from the Scudic Institute, which is Acadia National Park's um, nonprofit partner in science and learning, correct? I know you discussed climate issues. What were some of your takeaways or impressions of Director Sams's view of climate change and, and the issues going forward? Oh, well, he's certainly deeply focused on the importance of having it addressed beyond the park boundaries. Um, but he's also focused on the idea of um, sustainable, full use of the parks for everyone. He His, his indigenous background, he started his um, talk in, in his language from the Pacific Northwest, um, his, his community's language. And I, I think to me, one of the big takeaways I got from him was when he reminded us that uh, I think the number was, it's a ridiculous number. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I didn't write about our talk. I keep thinking I should have. He said that there are the uh, organizations, supporting organizations around the national parks are hundreds of thousands of people or members of these ancillary groups. And mm -hmm. yeah, and it's a, that's a huge facilitating community that can 
spill out into local schools and the like in ways that I think can really foster more cohesion, more support, and better futures for these um, places. And that, that was something I really took away. And also using parks as a portal in, for research came through clear too, not just science to support maintaining the park itself, but to give a better understanding because it's relatively un, unspoiled, <laughs> funny word, undeveloped. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of a learning laboratory as well. Right, and there's a lot of work going on in that area for sure. So you're a big proponent of the role of communication and not just telling the climate change story, but for addressing um, the complex issues that are arising. And I think that's one goal of your initiative on communications and sustainability at Columbia University. Uh, tell us about that program. Sure. Three years ago, just before the pandemic, I came to Columbia to uh, build a little initiative on communication and sustainability at what was then the Earth Institute. It's a 25-year-old um, interdisciplinary hub for sustainability science, and now is known formally as the Cl Columbia Climate School, reflecting the prioritization around climate right now. And what I was trying to present is something I mentioned to you earlier, which is that the communication climate is really a part of the Earth system now. And it could, for better or worse, uh, and if we don't do more work to understand, to test, to um, share how to use this evolving system for uh, getting ideas, refining ideas, and collecting information, and, and coming up with uh, tools that can be applied to solve problems around the world, if we don't pay attention to it and invest in knowing what works and doesn't work we're either losing we're losing a tremendous opportunity and at the same time um, amplifying the risk of it going in the opposite direction the uh, remote sensing of the planet right now has created an immense opportunity to uh, ground truth to just to verify what countries say they're doing about deforestation or the like or now you don't need to rely on a country's reports on its inventory of forests because it's very sophisticated remote sensing can now create a portrait of that and almost in real time uh, there were students high school students this is early months of the pandemic a little project was facilitating getting nasa data looking at the amazon rainforest into the hands of high school students who were helping to sift for um, imagery indicating that uh, Yanomami Indian reserves were being invaded by uh, gold miners. So kids in Massachusetts and in Iowa were helping do some of the work that was revealing uh, areas where it looked like there was um, this kind of illegal, these reserves. And that resulted in an article in Reuters, the Reuters news, news agency. Now that feels to me, and I did a webcast about it because I thought, oh my God, it that sort of really encapsulates a lot of what I think about. You know, if you get students motivated to put some of their brilliance into facilitating better outcomes in the Amazon uh, through data that are publicly available, how can we work to make each of those components a little bit better? You want to make sure there's open data. You want to make sure teachers are aware 
that they can use, uh, have this sort of project-based, problem-based learning can be part of how they, it's not just teaching from a book and who runs the interface. Same thing with um, Global Fishing Watch, you know, where they have ship track data that is clarifying using AI, advanced uh, artificial intelligence, to pick up patterns of suspicious fish, uh, shipping act, ship activity that could be illegal fishing. So that's at one scale, the big scale. And then you just have uh, how to use social media, or um, what can a school, uh, what can, what are the lessons learned in a school in the Bronx? where they do a boiler room tour where the kids go into the school's underpinnings and learn how to how much oil they use to heat the building and what they can do to change it, you know, to make sure those kids have the ability to tell their story in a way that can make inspire others at other schools to 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 emulate. So so that I just try to get at all those problem possibilities. The other thing I try to do is within Columbia get the disciplines to talk to each other. You know, as I said, when I mentioned early on in my journalism career, the first time I talked to social scientists, uh, there are many physical and biological scientists who don't talk to social scientists either. And and so and facilitating that crosstalk is also a way to um, tackle some of the problems we face that require understanding of all of those things at once. That's really all I had. Um, any other thoughts that you wanted to add? Well, just I think I hope that young people don't get paralyzed by this, the two things we now face. One is the information pollution, and the other is the scope of challenges like global warming or having green crabs or pythons completely transforming the ecosystems around us, uh, or the, the idea of a great extinction. There is so much that can be done wherever you are and what in whatever discipline you choose it's not just for scientists it's for artists for um, engineers for entrepreneurs that everyone out there young or old can play a role in uh, shifting outcomes toward a better trajectory and that one key part of that is to share the information share your experience don't leave social media I, I really think it doesn't mean you have to live there, but but if people abandon these systems for sharing and shaping insights um, to those who just want to abuse them or make money with them, there's a, there's a really, not just a lost opportunity, but there's, it really can drive the system toward the other, the other end of the spectrum. And I think that uh, there's tons to be done that can leave you maybe feeling a little wiped out the end of a day or the end of a week, but hopefully energized when you wake up the next morning, uh, something to do, something to share, something to learn, something to experience. You know, I naturalist, uh, I still, I, you know, when I see a natural wonder up here in Maine, even a, even a boring one, you know, the idea of sharing that information is just, uh, if we can keep people focused on that, especially young people think, then we could surprise ourselves on the upside. Well, Andrew Revkin, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your unique perspectives and experiences. And we're so glad that you were willing to talk with us. It's my pleasure. And I'll be in, I won't be in the park later this week, but I'll be really close to Arcadia. Uh, and I hope everyone gets a chance to experience one of these places uh, at least once and hopefully more frequently in their lives. 
That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, contributing editors Lynn Riddick and Kim O'Connell will join me to look back at some of our favorite stories from the parks from 2022. Finally, we're nearing the end of our year-end fundraising campaign, and I hope you'll support The Traveler with a donation so we can continue to support you with the news surrounding the essential places that you treasure. The National Parks Traveler covers stories that might otherwise go untold on a national basis, such as the move by the National Park Service to more than double visitation at Cumberland Island National Seashore, how the lack of staffing at Mount Rainier National Park is cutting off paradise outside of weekends, how parks are or are not dealing with crowding, and how the Park Service has grappled with invasive species. We even bring you feature-length articles about parks not named Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, or Acadia. You can mail your donation to National Parks Traveler, Post Office Box 980452 in Park City, Utah, 84098, or go to nationalparkstraveler.org and click on the Donate button at the top of the page. Thanks in advance for your consideration. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.